first Wednesday. This is our monthly gathering where we reflect on important cultural topics uh, through the lens of the gospel story. Uh, we bring in speakers. We have text and questions. We do a lot of different things. Um, in the past, we've talked about everything from, from art to politics to sports to uh, immigration to a whole number of things. And tonight, we're going to talk about calling. What do we how do we discern what we're called to do? Is this even biblical, this idea of, of being called? And, and does my work matter to God? Questions like, what if I find myself in a job that seems meaningless or a job that I hate? What do I do then as a person who is trying to be a faithful follower of Christ? So these are the questions that we hear quite a bit um, as we, as we meet with you throughout the week. And these are important questions and questions that we want to address tonight. Now, many of you know that this is something that's really important in our church and emphasized quite a bit. Things like work and calling and, and, and living all of life, all for Jesus. We have all of life interviews where we bring people on stage and ask about how they're living out their vocations and occupations before the face of God. We have vocation collectives where we bring people together from similar industries to, to wrestle with the big questions of their industry. And much of what we've emphasized is the importance of work and uh, no matter what your work is, how it fits into to God's story. And we're going to continue to have, we're going to address questions like that tonight, but we also want to address questions of just practically, what does it look like to help understand the good works that God made us for and the type of work that we should engage in? Now, we have Amy Sherman who's one of my favorite authors, who shaped a lot of people uh, in this room through her books, through her writing, through her teaching. She's going to speak tonight, and then we're also going to have a time of text-in uh, Q&A. But before we do all that, um, I have to ask you a really obscure question just to get the night going, all right? I just want to have a fun question. So here it is. Ready? If you were taken into witness protection tonight... And you had to be relocated into a completely random city where you don't know anybody. And you had to do a completely new job. What city would it be and what job would you do? So go ahead and discuss that with the people around you. And I'll come up in a moment and introduce Amy. Let me, um, let me open the night in prayer. Father, we are profoundly grateful for your uh, generosity towards us and the, the reality that you work in the world through human hands, that you have made us known to your, that you have, you have made yourself known to us, that you have drawn us near, you've called us your children, and you've, you've given us good work as your workmanship. Lord, we pray tonight for wisdom. We pray that you would give us wisdom through Amy and through our discussions with one another uh, to help us discern how to glorify you and love our neighbor through the work of our hands. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, to introduce our speaker, there's some things you should know. 
number one is that uh, Dr. Amy Sherman, she's the senior fellow at the Sagamore Institute for Policy Research. She directs the Center on Faith and Communities. She's the author of six books, including Kingdom Calling. Who in here has read Kingdom Calling? Raise your hand. All right, a bunch of folks. Um, including 75 articles and periodicals such as Christian, in Christianity Today, First Things, Public Interest, Policy Review, uh, Books and Culture, Prism, a number of those things. And she has, uh, she's one of my favorite authors and my favorite thinkers. I've learned a ton from her. So uh, much of what you've experienced through uh, vocational discipleship and stuff has been influenced by her. And there's something that you should know. When I asked her the question of what she would do if she was in witness protection, I asked her earlier today, I thought it would be a fun question to ask. It, you know what she said? She said she'd be a comedian in Las Vegas. <laughs> so that should just tell you how awesome she is. So would you go ahead and give her a hand as she comes up? Oh, now I feel all this pressure to be funny. It's tough, man. It's tough. Uh, okay, so I guess all the little ones go to Sunday school or Thursday school or Wednesday school, first Wednesday school. My uh, people will ask me, since I do talk about faith and work stuff a lot, people will ask me, so like, what's, what was your worst job or what was your hardest job ever? And I'm like, oh, that is so easy. When I was running an urban ministry, and on Friday afternoons, I was the third grade girls Bible club teacher. That just about did me in. That just about wasted me. Um, I'm, I'm the baby in the family, and uh, I babysat one time in my whole life. I wasn't asked back. <laughs> there was a fire truck involved. They, they say, I'm, that's just a rumor. Um, well, it's really fun to be with you guys. I love Phoenix. Um, I love Phoenix. I love sun. I love heat. It's great. I grew up in Buffalo. It's really awful. <laughs> Snow is a four-letter word that starts with S. And uh, I'm just really glad to be in Phoenix. Um, and really glad to be with Redemption folks. I love you guys. Um, it's my first time at Redemption Tempe but I've had the chance to be at Redemption Arcadia a number of times. So, so fun to, so fun to be with you. And, and fun to talk about this um, topic about um, vocation and um, uh, vocation and, uh, and what I call the, the, the common good. And I hope that what we'll um, be talking about tonight will be encouraging to you, that will be um, maybe a little challenging, maybe fresh, hopefully, um, maybe every now and then funny. Um, so I want to begin by um, helping us to just remember what the, the Latin word uh, for the English word vocation comes from the Latin word vocare, and that just simply means call. And um, I think the single most important thing that we can think about when we come to these questions about faith and work is to remember that it's all about a call, and that assumes a caller. I'm getting an echo. Are you guys getting an echo? Okay. 
As long as you guys aren't, it's just all in your head, Amy. <laughs> Strange voices. Um, a caller. Um, if we stay focused on the caller, <laughs> a lot of our angst, a lot of our stress, a lot of our confusion uh, will, will actually really be tamped down um, if we can really stay focused on the caller. Um, and whether you know a lot about what your calling is, whether you're really confused about what your calling is, whether you love your work, whether you hate your work, whether you're in an in-between season, whether you're doing paid work or unpaid work, um, the more we can understand that our work is a calling and it responds to a caller, um, the better off we're going, to, we're going to be. Jim wanted me to at least mention um, kind of the topic of vocational discernment. Um, I look out and I see a lot of folks out here that are younger than, than I am. And so I know that, you know, if you're in your 20s, um, 30s, um, you're thinking a lot about work. It's what we spend a huge amount of our time doing. And this whole question of what should I be when I grow up? What should I major in college? What should my job be? Which job should I choose? These are all really, really pressing questions that we have. And, uh, and in my book, Kingdom Calling, I tried to help a little bit with that. And um, uh, I came up with this little diagram and um, talked about how to the extent we can try to find that place in work where our passions and gifts intersect with God's priorities in the world and the needs of the world, to, to the place where we can find work in, in that center little spot of the, of the diagram, that's a really, really good place to be. It's a very fulfilling place. It's a very meaningful place. Um, but you'll see that in the diagram, partly because I'm really lousy with like figuring out how to use PowerPoint and putting the little circles together and everything, pretty non-techy. Um, part of the reason that the little sweet spot looks so small is just because I couldn't like squish the circles together better. But part of it, part of it is deliberate too because while it is great to have that as an aim, the reality is um, we're not going to spend all of our working lives in this perfect sweet spot. There's going to be seasons in our life when we're not doing work that feels like it's fully drawing upon our gifts and talents and skills, and that'll be a little frustrating. There's going to be seasons of time when we might be having the opportunity to do some work, but it might feel kind of mundane or kind of apart from things that seem to be really important in the world. Um, so... Um, Although it's something to strive for and think about, um, it's also not something to um, sort of demand or be insistent about um, because plenty of our work is just hard. And sometimes we just do work that just has to get done. And sometimes we have seasons of time where we're doing work, uh, again, paid or unpaid uh, work, that, that, that isn't right exactly in the sweet spot. And, and we shouldn't feel guilty about that. But I put that diagram up there because at least by way of an aspiration, 
I think it's a great thing to think about um, all three of those circles. <clears throat> but um, as good as this diagram might be to ask questions, well, what are God's priorities? What, what's the mission that God is on? What, what does he really care about, and how can I align myself with that? What are the needs of the world? And, and by world, I mean both our immediate context of our neighborhood, our city, our community, our, our country, our, our world, and what are my gifts and passions? Those are all really good questions to, to be asking. But tonight I want to give you some additional questions, I think, um, that can be helpful in uh, really making God the Lord, of our, the Lord of our lives. Again, because we want to stay focused on the caller. And one of the things I think is that's really, really important, as we stay focused on the caller, um, we need to posture ourselves in a way that's kind of different than a lot of what the culture tells us to do. Um, we need to take on a posture of responsiveness and dependency on the caller. In other words, um, we need to model um, uh, our lives after Jesus, who said some pretty dramatic things like, I can do nothing apart from the Father tells me to do. I can say nothing apart from what the Father tells me to say. There's this incredible humility in Jesus. There's this incredible focus on the Father and responding and depending on, on the Father. And um, that is different than the culture that sort of says things to us like, you can be anything you want to be. You know, you can craft your own destiny. Carpe diem, seize the day. Um, there's a sense of what I call aggressive personal initiative um, that, that, uh, that sometimes the culture is, is sort of encouraging us to take. And initiative in general, that's not a bad word, right? All of you parents of, you know, kids, you know, if your kid actually, quote unquote, takes initiative to empty the dishwasher or takes initiative to pick up their room without you telling them 500 times to do it, like you, you, you tell them, way to go, Johnny, like way to empty the dishwasher on your own, way to take initiative, right? So that's kind of initiative, that's great. But I'm talking about the culture's kind of aggressive initiative that says, you know, it's all about you and you're in control. I, I watch the PBS NewsHour. It's really the only thing I watch. It's the only thing I really get on my big old TV. I don't have a smart TV. My friend recently bought a smart TV. I said, what's a smart TV? <laughs> like, you know, and the thing about her smart TV is like, we're both way too dumb to operate it. She had like five different remotes to try to make this thing work. I'm like, why don't we just stay at home at my house? Got the big TV, it's about this big, it's like really deep, you know? And you go up and you push the power button, doink, and it turns on, you know? So you don't have five remotes trying to tell you what to do. So anyway, so uh, unfortunately my dumb TV only gets one channel, which is PBS. And um, the PBS NewsHour is the one thing I watch and they have these commercial sponsors, and one of them is Lincoln Financial Group, which is a brokerage house. And this, the tagline, it's, it's just hilarious, the tagline for Lincoln Financial Group is, you're in charge. And then the, the slogan that comes on the screen after the little 30-second uh, little advertisement is, 
Lincoln Financial, you can be your own chief life officer. You know, and you're just, I'm just thinking to myself, I, you, know, I, you know, every night I hear that like two different times. Um, and I think to myself, that is so crazy. Like, we are so not our own chief life officer. We are so not in charge. God is in charge. I'm not in charge. Praise God I'm not in charge. But that's what the, you know, so the, the culture is sort of saying, take this, you know, you're in charge. Make it happen. Craft your destiny. You can be whatever you want to be. What will be most fulfilling to you? What will be most meaningful for you? Find yourself. Fulfill yourself. You know, this is what the, the, the culture is all about that. But, but when we start with the caller, we don't start with our own initiative. We start by responding to the voice of the caller, just like Jesus did. And that gets very practical because um, my friend Sky Jatani, who edits a leadership journal, um, he, he says what's written on the screen here, and you've, it's been sitting there for a minute, so hopefully you've been able to, to take it in. Um, there's nothing wrong with the fulfillment of, of good desires, and desires are good. There's nothing wrong with us wanting to have a good job, to have a meaningful job, to have a sense of purpose. But what Jatani is talking about is when, we're, when we follow just sort of drifting into the culture's way of thinking about these things, and we make our decisions exclusively on the basis of, well, what do I want, and what's good for me, and what will bring me satisfaction, and what can I make happen by being really strategic and smart about how I'm going to climb up the corporate ladder. When we act like that, we're acting as though we're making our decisions about calling apart from the caller, and that's a real problem. So we need to stay focused on the caller. So I think there's three basic questions that we can ask um, about um, uh, listening to the way, listening to the caller in a way that, that, that directs us towards work that really can participate in advancing the common good. So again, don't mishear me. I want you all to find jobs that you love and that you're satisfied by and that do in fact draw in your interests and passions and do give you a lot of joy. And God wants that for you also. Don't mishear me about the goodness of work and, and wanting to have that be a, a really joyful part of, of your lives. I'm simply saying that it can't only be all about us. It, it's it's got to, work is meant for the glory of God, for the joy of us, and for the love of our neighbors. It's more than just about us, right? So there's these three questions, I think, that can be helpful. And the first question is what I call the what um, question. Um, again, if we're responding to the caller, we're asking the question, well, what work could I do that participates in what God is already doing? How can I respond? God is at work in the world. How do I get to respond to that? God is at work in the world. How do I get to join him in the work that he is doing? And God is at work in the world in at least these ways. God is involved in ongoing provision of creation. We're Christians, we're not deists. We don't think God just made the world and then went off and played golf forever. We believe God is actively sustaining the world through the work of our hands. As an old Jewish rabbi once said, um, God could have made bread trees, 
so that we would go out and like we'd just like Wonder Bread would be like, you know, pull it off the, <laughs> you guys are like, you don't even know what Wonder Bread is, do you? Like, <laughs> as shows I'm middle aged, like you guys, even, you like grew up with like hearty whole grain bread. <laughs> you know, I grew up with like white squishy Wonder Bread. Um, but God didn't make bread trees. God made grain. And then he told us to be farmers, <laughs> people who figure out the soil, people who, who plant it, people who water it, people who weed it, people who harvest it, people who take the grain and make it into bread. Okay? So God is at work in providing for the creation in 101 million ways, and mostly he does that work through our hands. God is actively restraining evil and corruption in the world. As bad as things are in the world, Satan is actually on a leash that God has ordained. And, and praise God that he is, because things would be a lot worse. God is actively, through what's known as his common grace, he actively is, is restraining a level of evil in the world. And sometimes the work that we do participates in that. If you're a cop, if you're a prosecutor, if you're a, an investigative journalist, you're somebody that is participating in God's restraint of, of evil in the world. God is at work advancing justice and shalom in the world. Um, and God is at work renewing all things. I love that, uh, I just love the emphasis here at Redemption on the grand story, creation, fall, redemption, restoration. That's the mission that God is on. He's renewing and restoring all things. So we ask, what work can I do that, that participates in this? And we ask ourselves, okay, in the job that I have right now, where, where does this fit? How is the work that I'm doing participating in these things? In what way am I, through the work I'm doing, am I being the hands and feet of God in providing practically for the needs of my neighbors? Because that's participation in God's ongoing care for creation. Or what way in my work am I an agent of advancing some flourishing, some, some, ju some justice, some shalom, even in a tiny corner of my world or a tiny part of, of my, my industry? So this looks like things like this guy, um, Alfonso um, uh, de Luna. He runs an auto body shop in Princeton, Texas. And God is at work in providing for his creation um, through the work of an auto mechanic named Alfonso. <laughs> He's a great guy. And um, where would we be? I mean, most of us have to have a car. Not everybody does, right? I used to live in D.C., and you could pretty much live there without a car and public transport. I'm all about it, but the reality of our society is a lot of it's built on the automobile, and so most of us actually have to rely on transportation to get where we need to go, all right? Well, again, like, God could have made the world in such a way that cars just, like, fell out of the sky and, you know, and never break down, but that isn't how the world is. And so one of the ways that God provides for you and I is through the work of auto mechanics. And frankly, I'm going to be a little bit sexist here. Um, I'm a girl, and I don't really know very much about cars. Now, I'm sure that there's a lot of girls out there that do, so I'm not trying to be sexist, okay? Some of you gals are, like, awesome at, at auto repair. I'm not, and I'm single. So until I found a decent, trustworthy auto mechanic, life was very stressful, right? Because I'm always aware that I'm about to go in and just get completely ripped off, right? Because what do I know? 
You know, oh, you know, your transmission fell out and you need a new one. Oh, okay, gosh, I thought it was just the muffler. Um, you know, what? I, I don't know, right? So, so I love, I love Alfonso because he's, you know, he's doing this, um, what some people in the world would say, well, that's pretty mundane. What does that have to do with faith and work and how is he being a, you know, well, he's, the first thing he's doing is he's providing an honest and good and really important service, Right? All of you little young families out there with your little minivans, right? How are you going to get little Junior to the hospital? How are you going to get little Juniette to, uh, <laughs> to daycare, you know, if your van isn't working, right? Um, but what's really great about Alfonso is that, so he's already doing something really great just, just by what he's doing, but I put a couple pictures of his employees up there because he's got such a wonderful heart that he's reached out to young men in his community um, who didn't have a lot of education. The, the one at the bottom there, Derek, uh, no, Alex, the one at the top, he had a heroin problem for a while. Um, and Alfonso basically has created opportunities for these young men to learn a trade skill and work alongside him in the, in the auto body shop. So here's, here's a guy who's really participating, I think, in God's ongoing um, provision for the, for the world. Um, and this is Nicole Baker Fulham. She's a gal who lives in Indianapolis, and, um, and I believe she's participating, uh, that her work is participating in the renewal of all things, because she's trying to bring renewal to the educational sector. Um, Nicole went off to college, became a teacher, did very well at that, um, joined something called Teach for America after university, went and taught for a year in a, in a sort of distressed, um, Title I, uh, lower income school, um, ended up staying there for the next four years, did very, very well, did amazing things, unlike me with the third graders, like her third graders like went from hardly reading to, you know, scoring really great on the tests and all this, she's a really, really great educator. But the thing that, um, you know, increasingly was uh, stirring within Nicole was that she just saw these amazing educational inequities in our society whereby the zip code that you live in determines so much of the education you're actually going to get. Um, and as a believer, she felt like she wanted to be a voice bringing the message, creating awareness among the Christian community about the problems of inequities in public education to the fore. So she ended up going on staff at Teach for America um, as, a, as sort of a mobilizer taking the message about this around to different um, faith communities uh, and really trying to get them mobilized to care about the discrepancies that occur in the educational sector. So both of these are stories of people who have, who have asked that what question. What is God sort of, what's, what is it that he's doing in the world and how does what I do, well, how can I join him? How can I align myself? How can I participate in that? But then the second question is what I call the who question, uh, and that's the question, who's benefiting from the deployment of my particular talents? Um, every one of us in this room, uh, as a child of God, um, by the way, whether or not you're currently a follower of Jesus, every one of us in this room has beautiful, God-ordained, God-given gifts, talents, and skills, natural abilities. We have different personalities. We have different things that God has given us passion for. All of us have been given by God various life experiences, 
of good things and of hard things. And then many of us, because I'm sitting here in, you know, Phoenix, Arizona, in the United States, in the 21st century, I can look out at you and say, and most of us have had incredible vocational training. Like most of us actually have gotten a decent education. Many of us in this room probably had the amazing privilege to go to college um, or to go and learn a trade at a trade school or to become an apprentice somewhere. So unlike literally billions of people around the world who have none of that, they, 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 they're doing the same job their grandfather did and his grandfather did and his grandfather did and his grandfather did. We actually have a lot of, we've been given a lot of vocational gifts and, and power. We, we have natural abilities, we have spiritual gifts and talents, we have all these life experiences. God has deposited within us uh, a lot. And we are privileged people, most of us. Most of us, compared to the rest of the world, we are very privileged people in that we have, in fact, been able to get good education a lot more than much of the world. And we have been able to, to have a couple of different jobs along the way where we've learned different kinds of skills. So we have, we have this deposit that God has given to us. And, and that requires us to ask the question, okay, well, God's giving me all these things. He's given me certain gifts and talents. I've, you know, I now know how to be, you know, I'm an engineer. I went to college and I'm an engineer. How am I going to use that engineering? I, I got to go to university and I was the girl that gave me a ride here tonight. Her husband is um, in medical school through the Navy. You know, he's going he's gonna to be a doctor someday. Um, we have these, we have these um, talents. And I think it's really important to ask the question, okay, who's going to benefit from how you use those talents? And the reality is some professions are organized in such a way that a limited number of people really benefit from their services. A great example of this is the field of architecture. Um, in the field of architecture, most of the clients, most people who go and pay architectural firms to give them their services, like you actually have to have a chunk of change to hire an architect. You need to be an organization or a business that goes in and, and hires one. Or, you know, if you're just an individual person um, and you want to remodel your home, like that's something, you know, you have to be kind of upper middle class to, to actually be able to afford an architect. So, so architects do great work. I love architects. I got lots of stories about architects. Not dishing on architects whatsoever. But the reality is, in general, the field of architecture serves a very s small slice of, of the world because most people can't access their services. There's a lot of underserved people. There's a lot of businesses that can't afford to hire an architect, but boy, it would be a great thing if they could, <laughs> right? They could design a, a better business environment. They could have a healthier, they could have a healthier office building, et cetera. So we've got to ask, who's benefiting? What are, the, what are the communities or the populations that maybe are underserved by people, um, people who need the talent I have, but they don't have a lot of access? And I love my story here about Jimmy Lin and his crew. So Jimmy Lin is a medical doctor and a PhD. He's the guy up in the top there. Um, total, all these people are like these unbelievable bra brainiacs. I mean, just, I can't even pronounce like the things that they studied in graduate school. And you know, it's like science was just, it's so far beyond me. They're into all this biotechnology and bioinformatics and 
genetic whatever and blah, 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 blah. And they're just a bunch of brainiacs. And they all are brainiacs with all these PhDs and medical degrees. And there's, they're working in all these different prestigious um, laboratories, medical centers, um, universities, um, and they do medical research. Well, Jimmy Lin um, found out um, about the reality that in the world there are about 250,000 kids around the world who suffer from very, very rare genetic diseases. So rare that if your kid has this a genetic disease like this, there literally might be only five or ten other kids on the whole planet that have that particular disease. So there's about a quarter of a million people, so it's a lot of people, but each of them have individually really, really, really rare genetic diseases. Because these kids have such rare diseases, there's virtually no medical research that's being done on their behalf, right? And you can understand that that would make sense, right? I mean, the National Institutes of Health, when it like, thinks about how to spend its budget, it's going to spend its budget on the diseases that affect the most people, right? It's going to spend its money on cancer research and heart disease and AIDS and, you know, these things that affect lots and lots and lots of people. And, and that's fine. That's probably smart, right? But one tragedy of that is that people that have these really rare genetic diseases, they, they have no hope. They have no cure. They, have, they don't even have information about what the heck's going on, and they don't even have a clue about how to even provide palliative care to their suffering children. So it's a, it's a, real, it's a real heartbreaker. So bless his heart. That's what we say in the South, bless his heart. Um, um, Jimmy Lin said, you know, me and my brainiac friends, maybe we could do something about that. So they formed this association called the, the Rare, Genetics, Rare, Rare Genomics Institute. And I don't understand what they do, but what they do <laughs> is each of these people who have their regular full-time jobs, all in, like I said, in all these laboratories and hospitals around the country, but each of the people in the, so in, the, in the network agrees to take on one family with one kid. And they agree to work with that family for as long as it takes to do something called um, gene, a genome sequence map, which again, don't ask me what it is, I don't know. Maybe there's some sciencey person here. But what I do know is the first step in trying to figure out the disease is you have to do this thing called genome sequence mapping. And so that's what his brainiac friends will do for these kids. So they're, they're saying to themselves, I'm deploying, here's a way that I can deploy my talents on behalf of you know, a family that particularly needs them and otherwise wouldn't have access to this kind of service. And then finally, oh, sorry, second story, Elise. Her story's fun too. Elise is a Native American uh, gal um, and uh, kind of the two really, two formative things in her life, two big formative things in her life. One was growing up um, poor um, and watching her grandmother have a very long decline health-wise um, and getting very, very lousy medical care through the Native American sort of health system on the reservation. Um, so that was a real pain and wound and tragedy for her to, to watch her grandmother suffer. And the second thing that was really formative in her early years was some science teacher in fourth grade just really 
turned her on, just really sparked her mind. And she discovered that she loved science and she became like the kid that won the science fair like every single year, you know, and just really did very, very well. And thankfully, Elise had a wonderful guidance counselor who told her, you know, that she uh, would help her think about how to find opportunities to get scholarships, go to school. So Elise is the first person in her whole family, uh, in her whole kinship network that ever went to college. And she went to college and became a, I think, it's a, I think it was a chemist, I can't remember, I might have written it down here. But anyway, um, after college, she, uh, she had a number of different job opportunities presented to her. Um, and uh, she decided to take the opportunity um, to work for a big Fortune 500 company. She had, she had an offer from Merck Pharmaceutical. Um, and it was interesting because she also had an opportunity uh, to go teach science um, in a low-income school. And some of her Christian friends were like, oh, well, it's like way more spiritual for you to like go teach science to little poor kids, right? And because why, why would you want to go work for like a big, bad, evil Fortune 500 company like Merck, you know, Big Pharma? Um, right? Big Pharma has problems, okay? I'm not going to defend them. Um, they do a lot of crappy things, all right? But Big Pharma also, because it's big, actually does a lot of good things. And what Elise realized through the counsel of some other people was that if she went to work for a big pharmaceutical company like that, there might be opportunities that she would not have otherwise to really do some good for the, for the people that she's the most passionate about, which are Native Americans. And sure enough, even though she's only been with Merck now for about seven years, um, she has been able to spearhead initi an initiative within Merck called the Sacred Dreams Project. And the Sacred Dreams Project has um, set up um, a medical um, business on a South Dakota reservation that is now employing 500 people. And this is in a community where the employment rate is 86%. So Elise was able to understand that, um, that, that she, could, she could go to work for a powerful company and be an influence within that company to, to, to sort of point its power in a positive direction for the people that, that she really is passionate about and who are often underserved. All right, finally, woohoo! I don't know how that happened. Where'd the other ones go? Oh, la, 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 la. Okay, third and final question is what I call the how question. Um, so we had the what question, as we're listening to the caller, we say, what are you up to? What are you doing? How are you working in the world? And how can I join that and participate that? We ask the who question, okay, you've given me all these amazing experiences and opportunities and talents and education. How do I deploy that in a way that, that benefits people who, who need those skills? And then finally, the how question. How do I do this work? Am I conducting the work in a way that uh, shows that I'm living out a practical, functional, daily dependence on God, uh, that shows that I'm um, really um, being Christ-like in my work to the point even of um, really living out in the workplace um, or at home if you're working in the home in a non-paid position um, or if you're volunteering, whatever your work is. Are, you, are we actually taking seriously the call in Philippians 2 to imitate Christ, who, though he was 
equal with God, did not consider equality something to be grasped, but emptied himself and became a servant. That word emptied himself is the Greek word kenosis, the pouring out, you know. So, so this question is, is about, about working in a way that, that you're focused on God and you're really trying to work in a way that brings uh, a deep sense of, of character and humility and servant leadership uh, to, to your work. And I've got two final stories and then I'll shut up. Um, my one story is about a guy who has a lot of vocational power and my other story is about a guy that doesn't have very much. So the story about um, Rich Dean is he's a lawyer, he's a partner in a big law firm up in Washington, D.C. called Baker and McKenzie. And um, Rich Dean, um, as a partner in the firm, um, can take whatever cases come through the door and pick off the cream of the crop ones, right? Because the way that law firms are structured, they're very hierarchical, and there's the partners, and there's the associates, and then there's the you know, I don't even know exactly what the hierarchy, but there's a pecking order. If you work in a big law firm, you would be able to stand up and tell us how that works. But as a partner, you have a lot of power and a lot of influence, and you have a lot of decision-making power. And as different cases come through the door, some cases are just more attractive. They're more interesting than the others. They're, they're, they're more intellectually stimulating. They're, they're more likely to get you, you know, fame and honor and publicity and get your name in the Washington Post. You know, there's just different things about these cases that come through. And as the partner, you get to take the best ones if you want to. And then everybody that's lower than you, you know, gets the crumbs. But consistently, ever since he became a partner, Rich Dean watches the cases come through and he gives away the good ones to the people that are lower on the chain. And he does it deliberately so that they have the opportunity for them to build their career, for them to learn new things, for them to, to develop professionally. And it is incredibly countercultural in the, in, the, in the world of big law, what he's doing, to the point where, on a regular basis, the younger associates that have experienced this over the years he's been at Baker and McKenzie will come up to him and say, I don't know why you're doing this. It's really weird. I'm so incredibly grateful. I'm kind of blown away. And can you explain to me, like, why you do this? <laughs> like, it's just so, it's so countercultural. That kind of humility and, and building somebody else up and sharing power, it's just so incredibly countercultural. And so, Rich Dean, over the years, has taken many, many young lawyers out to lunch and off the clock and outside the office, been able to tell them the story of Jesus and explain why he is the way he is. He's, 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 I think, living into that kind of kenosis. And then my final story, and then Jim's going to come up. My final story is about um, a guy I call Bob, because I don't really know who he is. It is a true story, but I heard it third hand, um, so I don't remember really what his name was or all the details about him. So I call him Bob in the hopes that, you know, when people ask a question, they might say something like, well, what about Bob? See, you didn't, you didn't, the Wonder Bread, that went way over your head. But what about Bob? You got that one. See, um, it's cool. So here's the, Bob, here's the Bob story. Goes to college, gets a degree in accounting, gets a job at a big accounting firm. He's the low man on the totem pole. Totem pole. <laughs> 
total. He's a low man on the totem pole. Gets in there, and he, there he is in cubicle land. He's, he's 25 years old, and he's in cubicle land, right? And, uh, and he's got his little job there as an accountant in this gigantic accounting thing. And one day, an email comes across his desk, and it's gone to everyone in the company, and it's an email from the, the company heads, and they say, we're looking for volunteers to be on the, on the committee uh, within our company. That's the committee that decides where our charitable dollars are going to go, because we have a charitable, we have a corporate giving arm, and we give away a certain amount of money every year, and we need people to be on this committee. Well, other people around Bob were complaining about this email, and they're like, oh, you know, they keep asking us to do all this stuff, and you know, you don't get paid for that. Like, if you're on that committee like that, you do that on your own time. Like, they don't even pay you for that. Like, and they just, you know, they send these things around, and, and I'm not doing that. And Bob was looking at it, and he's thinking, wow, like, our company, like, gives away lots of money every year to, like, things in our community. And if I was on that committee, like, I'd get to have a say in that. Like, that's kind of cool. So he's thinking, that sounds like kind of a good thing to do. So he joins the committee. After the end of the first meeting, they elect him to be the chairman of the committee. Because, <laughs> like, nobody wants to do this work. Right? So all of a sudden, this guy who's like low on the totem pole and living in cubicle land all, all of a sudden has quite a bit of influence. And, uh, and over the next two years, Bob like changed the corporate culture of that place. He started going around to everybody else that was young and in cubicle land, and he started explaining to them, do you realize that our company gives away like a pretty big chunk of money in our city every year? And, and like, we could actually have some influence about where it could go, because it just traditionally just kind of goes to the opera and it goes to these sort of standard things. He's like, tell me about nonprofits that, that you're interested in. He goes to the Christians, tell me about ministries that you know of in the city. And he starts widening the circle of where the grants might end up going. And then he goes to the HR people and he says, you know, let's not just give our money, like, we're an accounting firm. Like, we've got a whole bunch of people that, like, know about accounting. Couldn't we, like, help people, like, volunteer? And so they, some of the people now do something called the VITA program, where you fill out taxes for old people that are poor and, and can't afford to get their taxes done. Um, and, and they can do pro bono accounting um, for nonprofits that, that need help. Um, and, and so here's Bob. You know, because he was willing to serve, you know, other people were looking at it as, oh, I don't want to have to, you know, do that, go that extra mile and be a volunteer on this committee. And he said, no, I'm going to be a servant. I'm going to give my time to that committee. And he ends up changing the whole corporate culture, you know, and doing amazing, amazing things. So I hope that's helpful. Questions about what, who, and how. And I look forward to talking about them with you more. Thanks. Thank you, Amy. Well, well we're going to do some text-in questions, so if you guys could go ahead and throw up on the screen the number that, to text into. So follow those directions to text in a question. Um, right now I'm going to ask you a question that you can discuss around your tables. Um, I think it's a helpful thing for help, helping us understand how God made us the, to the good works we were made to do. 
by looking at our past, even at our childhood, and saying, when did I realize I was first good at something? So if you could just tell a few stories around your table about when you realized you were good at something as a kid, and uh, just share some of those stories around the table, and then in a few moments, we'll come up and uh, ask some questions. All right, go ahead. Everyone, let's go ahead and get started uh, with the, the text in questions. Um, once again, go ahead and text all of life with no spaces to 411247. Um, if you can follow those instructions to send a text message, you've earned the right to get your question asked. So with that said, um, I want to ask a few questions first. And uh, the first thing I want to do is go ahead and throw up the, the, the vocational sweet spot diagram uh, up, up there. And uh, if you could, I was wondering if you could walk us through each of those and, and talk through some practices or, or some things that you could do to help discern those things. Uh, so, so for instance, um, let's start with uh, my passions and gifts. If someone uh, is setting aside some time to really reflect on what are their passions and gifts, how would you advise they do that? Okay. Um, so there's at least two instruments or two types of instruments that I think are fairly common. Uh, and that you, that you may have been exposed to or, or already done. So one would be a sort of a personality inventory. So lots of people have done the Myers-Briggs or something of that ilk. And um, I think that that's a worthwhile thing to do. And there's a million different ones that are out there. Um, I had a, a friend recently say, hey, I'm an otter. Are you an otter or are you a lion? Or it's like, it, was like, it was like the animal one, which I thought, that's cool. I'm an animal person. It was like a lion, a badger, an otter, and a something. Yep. And they, each, they meant something, right? Mm -hmm. So if you haven't figured out if you're a lion or a badger or an otter or something else, like, that's good to figure that, that stuff out. Um, and then the other thing that I think is fairly familiar is the whole sort of what are my spiritual gifts. I mean, there's classes about that. There's Sunday school things. There's internet resources. Take this spiritual gifts inventory. You know, and that, I think both of those are really good tools. I do think, though, that they are inadequate um, because we are more than just our personalities and we are more than just our spiritual gifts. Um, so it's important to take inventory of our natural giftings. So, uh, you know, God made some people athletic and others not. God made some people detail-oriented and others not. God made some people um, uh, very um, good with words and language and that sort of thing, and other people really good with numbers and math, right? So knowing a little bit about that uh, is, is important, and you can, you can discern that by thinking about it yourself, by asking other people. Um, there's probably some kind of aptitude, you know, if you ever buy the book, that famous book, What Color Is Your Parachute? There's some things in there that get at some of this kind of thing. But also your life experiences and, and your passions. So, you know, really reflecting on, I, I do like, um, Bill Hybels a while back wrote a book, and I can't remember the title of it, but the whole idea of it was sort of like, what's the thing that goes on in the world that makes you really angry and mad and you just you if you could do if you were the czar of the world like you would fix it 
because it just it's just this burning thing that you hate, right? And you want to fix. Like it's it's I think it's great for us to know what what those things are, um, and then just the process of reflecting a little bit on your own life journey, um, including the hard things in your life. Um, it's really important not only that we steward all the opportunities and sort of all the good that's been deposited in us, you know, steward that high school education, that college education, steward that apprenticeship that you got to do, steward that, you know, that natural talent that you have as an athlete or whatever, um, but also to steward the hard things, like where, were, where, was, where has the suffering in your life been? Um, and, and where has God's healing come into your life through that suffering? And what did you learn from all of that? Those also are things that are inside you that need to be, that need to be stewarded. Um, so those, that would be what I would say about that. Can I add a few things yeah, to that? Yeah, sure, absolutely. I think um, uh, uh, the question that we asked before of, of when do you remember first being good at something is a, is a, good, question, is a good question. If you get some time to sit down with a journal, I would just take a look at your childhood and just say, when do I remember, like write down narratively, sometimes you remember being good at stuff and remember times that you ended up uh, really enjoying something. Because I think God makes us to be certain people. Ephesians 2.10 talks about the, uh, the good works that he created for us as his workmanship. And I think some of the way we discern what those good works he created us for is are the things that you see throughout your life that you tend to gravitate towards to, to be good at, and to really care about. So I think that's a, mm -hmm. a helpful exercise as well. Absolutely. How about um, taking us through uh, um, God's priorities? How do we know God's priorities? Yeah, I think the reason that I sort of threw that circle in there um, comes out of a larger sort of theological point that is actually illustrated by what's on, up on the stage here. Um, uh, in the book, I talk about the problem of having a too narrow gospel mm -hmm. um, when we think that basically the sort of the story of the world is, you know, the big problem is that we're all sinners, we're on the Titanic, it's sinking, um, and we've got to get as many people rescued as possible uh, and, and into heaven. And that's kind of the operative narrative uh, of our faith. And so in that narrative, God's priorities are, are fairly singular. Um, they're about the salvation of people's souls. Um, and so evangelism becomes really the only really, really important thing to do because if, our, if, our, if we're starting sort of with Genesis 3 and the basic problem is sin, and, um, and our eschatology is basically that, well, you know, God's going to just sort of burn everything up, um, and there's this place called heaven where we're going to kind of float around in, as disembodied spirits playing harps on clouds. You know, if that's essentially our functional theology, then our answer to the question, what are God's priorities in the world, the answer to that question is going to be, well, his priority is evangelism, mm -hmm. like it's the saving of souls. And so we have people that in the past have said things like, the only things that will last are the word of God and the souls of men. And I'm not going to tell you who said that. It was actually a famous person, and he did a lot of good in the world. But that's a, that's a theologically very false and incorrect statement because those aren't the only things that last. 
this world is going to last. It's going to be renewed. It's going to be changed. It's, it's going to be restored, purged of all evil. That This body is, is going to last. I believe in the resurrection of the body and the life of the world to come. So when we have this larger narrative, then our answer to the question, what are God's priorities, begin to expand. Oh, well, if God is actually involved in the renewal of all things, if God loves his creation and has said multiple times it's very good and I want to restore it and I want to bring it to its fullest development, then many, many things are good. God, that means that God loves art. He loves beauty. He loves music. He loves culture. He loves justice. He loves wholeness. He cares about relationships, not just the personal relationship with God, but he cares about the vertical relationship, the inner relationship, so psychology matters. He cares about the social relationship, so conflict resolution and mediation and diplomacy and marital counseling and all the, that, that all matters to God. And he cares about the, our relationship to the created order. So our bodies matter, physicality matters, how we treat the earth matters. So God's priorities, the circle of God's priorities goes from being something very small to something quite a bit bigger. The other reason that I use that term, God's priorities, the, the most important is to expand the circle. But also, well, actually, this is sort of going into the needs part, so I'll just segue into that. So the reason I put the, the needs part sort of separately, um, you know, and the diagram's not perfect. In fact, I'm reading a manuscript that's going to um, be published soon, and they took my diagram and they tweaked it, mm -hmm. and I thought, wow, like, that's really good. I wish I could... I wish I knew how to like do that whole thing where you like take a picture of something and then you like somehow scan it and put it into the computer and because I was like, man, it'd be cool, cool to put that up there, but I don't know how to do that because <laughs> I don't have a smart whatever. <laughs> um, so, so the the danger of saying, okay, the circle of God's priorities isn't this little thing called evangelism, which is really, really, really important. Don't mishear me on that, please. Okay, don't think. Oh, Pastor Jim, like, why'd you invite that liberal person up here? And she said, like, doesn't and evangelism doesn't matter. Okay, no, 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 don't hear me. <laughs> evangelism really, really, really matters. It's really, 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 really important. It's just not the only thing that is God's priorities. His priorities are bigger than that, okay? The danger, though, in expanding the circle is we can begin to think um, that lots of things are needs or priorities that really kind of aren't. So I put the world's needs there because I do believe that certain things are trivial, right? And there's a real distinction between the trivial and the mundane. Uh, I loved Jim's article, if you haven't read it. Um, you know, Jim talked about what it, would, what it looks like to be a janitor. Okay, the work of a janitor in our society is considered mundane work, right? It's not really sexy. It's not given a lot of social status and honor, right? But I love what Jim said about it when he said, you know, the, the, the janitor is conducting, you know, microbiological warfare, <laughs> right? So that, so that germs are kept at bay and that, I mean, that is an incredibly, it's mundane, but it is incredibly important. The, the world has a need. <laughs> we cannot have wholeness in this world without public sanitation. The mundane is different from the trivial. 
there are companies whose whole business proposition and whose whole service product line is to create living environments for your pets that are theme-oriented. Okay. So wealthy people who go to work in Manhattan and have to leave, you know, Fifi behind during the day can hire at a very high cost this firm to come in and to look at the apartment and to create for Fifi some sort of themed experience <laughs> like jungle land or, you know, princess land or people actually do this, okay? The world doesn't need that, okay? The world does not need more gold-plated tennis ball holders. There's companies that make stuff like that. So I put, the I put the world's needs circle there as a way of trying to say, yes, I'm all for creation, and it all matters, and it's great, and there's no secular sacred divide. But I also wanted to put in there, but some things are just trivial, and they're not important, and they're not in any way attached to the reality of the needs of the world. And so we've got to keep that circle in mind as well. All right, let's, let's take a few questions here, but be ready, because i got some crazy okay, ones good. for you. I love, I love the right. crazy ones. All right, how important is money when choosing money, a money, vocation? Money, 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 <laughs> And uh, I've seen people in financial difficulty who do great work, and it seems doable if, they're, if you're single, but what about if you have a family? So how big of a deal is this money thing? Yeah, I love money. I would like any of you that want to give me some at the end of the night, you're very welcome to. <laughs> I can also share my um, mailing address with you. Um, hey, if so, you used to share the, your mailing address, they're not going to send you money. They're going to come to your door and ask advice. So oh, just... great. I charge. Um, I do think money is important. Um, I think it's one among the various factors that is legitimate to consider on that decision-making grid. You know, this job's going to pay X and that one's going to pay Y, and what does that mean for our family? And um, so I think it's complicated. I think it's, I, I do think it's legitimate, so I don't, I don't want anyone to think, oh, that's like so unspiritual to like to actually consider, you know, the money part of the equation. I don't think that's unspiritual at all. I think that's, that matters and it's reality. Um, you know, I, I, I think the thing about the money thing is that we just, we live in a very affluent society, right? Duh. Um, and we just need to be continually aware of the, the way in which we're, we're in a cultural river and it's, it has a current and we're all in it, and, and the current runs swift, and, and the current is a current that increasingly moves us to think that, that wants are needs. It's very interesting, if you study, um, if you look at surveys of people over time from the 1930s, 1940s, 1960s, 1970s, 1990s, et cetera, 
there's been surveys that have been done where people are sort of asked the question like, what's really, what's really, what are the, what's the, what's necessities? What, what do we, what are sort of the non-negotiables? Or, or you ask people in real estate who've been in real estate for 30 or 40 years, you know, what are young, you know, what are the non-negotiables for young couples these days when they're looking at a house? And honestly, it's crazy. Like we've gotten to the point where, you know, like granite countertops are like a need. You know what? They're actually not. <laughs> I lived for a long time without granite countertops, and it didn't seem to actually change me as a person. <laughs> I still don't have granite countertops. And I don't feel like I'm just like so deprived. Okay, now, those of you that have granite countertops, I'm not, I'm not ragged on you, okay? I'm, not, I'm really not. I'm not ragged on you. What I'm saying is we're in this stream. And so the, where the money thing becomes important is the age-old question of what's actually enough. Mm-hmm. So, so the question is, wow, I've got this great opportunity to do this job, and it's kind of in the sweet spot, but it's 20 grand a year less than doing this other thing, and I do have a family support. What should I do about that? I think at that point, you have a good conversation with your spouse, and you really talk about the lifestyle that you want your family to have. And, and really be, get ruthless with one another and get honest about what do you really need versus what just would be a nice perk, you know? I mean, I'm astonished at how many people, you know, actually think you have to absolutely, everybody has to have a car. Mom, dad, and the two teenagers, like, there's got to be four cars. Like, how could, how could we possibly live with only one or two? Like, four is like the bare minimum. It's like, no, actually, millions of people around the world get along just fine. So I, I think you have to do that. Mm-hmm. That's good. I think, it's, I think it's healthy to kind of look at your life and say, where, what's, what's kind of a right uh, place for us? And then take one step back, assuming the fact that this big consumeristic culture has affected you and, and take it a step below that. But money is, uh, I heard someone say once that it is, uh, in many ways, it's, it's liquid love. <laughs> and, um, you, and, and, and the question of what you do with that money is a, is a uh, question of affection. But having lots of money is the ability to wield a lot of liquid love out into the world and bless, bless people, but also a lot of love towards certain other things, idols that might be centering right. your life. Let's, right. let's add another question up here. How do I choose between being content in my current job and pursuing the sweet spot? But before we ask that, let me just do a little survey. Who in the last two years has thought, should I change my job? All right. With that said, please go ahead and answer the question. <laughs> wow. I definitely need to be paid for the answering that question. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. And maybe some wisdom about how to navigate the path versus, yeah, yeah you should change it. <laughs> yeah, okay, well, I'll pretend I'm the wise Yoda here. Um, so, a bunch of random things come to my mind. Number one, my, my statement from my friend Bill Haley, don't waste that crappy job. Don't waste that crappy job. So, first thing to do is 
why are you why are you discontent? What's crappy about your job? Um, and are you willing to to acknowledge the reality that that it may be that God has you in the job because He's working on your character? Um, Bill Haley says, "School work is a school of spiritual formation." So don't just jump out of that crappy job the minute it gets a little uncomfortable mm. because God might actually be trying to use it to, to work on your heart a little bit, work on, work on making it a little bit more like Jesus. Mm. So don't waste that, that crappy job. That's, that's point one. Point two, um, get together with some trusted friends and really discuss the, the sources of your discontent. Some sources of discontent are just, frankly, more legitimate than, than others. If the sources of your discontent are largely indicative that you kind of have an, an idol for status and for power and for sort of worldly success and what you're unhappy about in your current job is that those desires have been thwarted you're not yet in the corner office and you're pretty ticked off about that. You're, you're not let recognized, you don't have the title that you wanted to have and you're ticked off about that. Um, you see your peers in other uh, jobs who are similar age to you and they seem to have more success than you do. So is your discontent because actually there's just things you really want and you've made them idols and you don't like your current job because it's not feeding your idols? Like, you need to be honest about that. Those are, those are sources of discontent, but those may be discontents that you have to take to the Lord and say, I, I think you don't actually want me to be discontent about these things. I think you want me to accept these things. Um, but then there are, I think, really legitimate sources of discontent. Like, gosh, the God, I've done all that stuff. I've done those inventories, and God's made me you know, a person with ABC talents and gifts, and every day I go to work and I'm asked to do XYZ roles and jobs and tasks. And it's just a constant, constant mismatch, mismatch, every day, every day, every day. There I am, I'm like a totally an, an artist on the inside and I'm a dental hygienist on the outside. And it's just mismatch, mismatch, mismatch every time, right, you know? That, that's a legitimate source of discontent, and that's a, that's a place to really start thinking about, Lord, would you open up an opportunity for me to, to get into something that would allow me a little bit more of opportunity to express who you made me um, in, in the work that I'm, that I'm doing? So I think you get together with, with other people. Um, you think about why, you know, what are you content about, what are you not content about? Um, I think when it comes to thinking about job change, um, I think it's always great, um, you know, it's faith over fear is always a winner, right? So if, if you're relatively discontent and you've excavated the source of your discontents and they seem largely to be legitimate ones, but you stay, you continue to stay in the job because you're fearful of losing it or leaving it, you're fearful of what might come next, then I think that's probably pretty strong evidence that God wants you to quit and get a different job. <laughs> because your, your life at that point is being really driven by fear and not by faith. Um, They're not afraid to quit jobs. They do it all the time. Oh, they do it all the time. 
<laughs> no, but yeah. I think there, there's uh, something to that. Because um, as much as I look like I'm about 70 years old, I'm actually 33 and I'm officially a millennial, right? And, and our people, what we do is we bounce from job to job to job because we're looking for uh, the, the sweet spot. And I think that there's some wisdom to, to doing two things. One is reimagining the work that you're currently doing along the lines of the questions that Amy asked of, of who is benefiting from this. Um, um, the, the questions of, of um, uh, what is God doing in and through this? And I think a lot of your boredom can often come from the fact that you are viewing the job along the story of status or the story of money or the story of a whole lot of things that have been shaped uh, through uh, the, the idols of the world. But there's some wisdom to, to, to reimagine your current job and then get a long-term view of where you might want to end up in five, ten years and work really hard at it work really hard at how you can deploy your gifts and abilities for the sake of other as you re reflect uh, God's character and, and, and put in the sweat for it. And don't assume that, that just the quitting immediately and going to the next job is going to solve it. If you're really going for the vocational sweet spot, for many of us, um, it is, is wise to, to have a vision and lean into that vision over years and put in the work rather than kind of try to claim our birthright of saying, I should have meaningful work the day I graduate college, right? right. Yeah. Next question. How do these questions about vocation apply to those who are homeless and disabled? Ooh, great, great. question. That's a really great question. Thank you for that one. Um, so one of my favorite ministries is called Mission Waco. They're in Waco, Texas, run by a friend of mine named Jimmy Dorrell. And um, they do a lot of different things, but one of their big outreaches that they began with was ministry among the homeless, and they have a, they have a homeless residency, you know, kind of shelter, rehab program, et cetera, et cetera. They have a thing called Church Under the Bridge. Um, it's a very vibrant church that's now, I think it just celebrated like its 15th or 20th anniversary. Um, they literally, there's a bunch of homeless people that live under an, an, an overpass of, of a, you know, big highway, and there's a church there, and they call it, you know, every week they have church under the bridge. But one of the things I love about Jimmy and, and the work that he does with the homeless is, um, so church under the, home, church under the bridge ha goes on mission trips. And so homeless people go on short-term missions for a week, and they go to Mexico, and they go to Haiti, and they go to these different places, and they, you know, do work, just like, I'm sure a lot of, I'm looking at a lot of young people who probably over the course of your life, more than half of you or I don't know, third of you have gone on these sort of little short-term trips. Um, so I love, I love how Jimmy has this view that, hey, you know, if you're a Christian and you're homeless, like, doesn't exclude you from the opportunity to participate in what God's doing in the world. And he makes that really tangible by inviting people to, to come on mission trips with him. I think that's just really a really cool thing. Yeah. So I, tell you, I begin my answer to that question with that story um, by way of illustrating the larger principle, which is um, God made all of us with gifts and talents, and God has purposed work as part of his normative intentions for all of us. You see, work shows up in Genesis 1 and 2, which means it's part of the way things ought to be. It's part of what 
God want, it's, it's work is not a post-fall Genesis 3 institution. It happens, it is right there in Genesis 1 and 2. And that means whether you're disabled, homeless, whatever you are, old, poor, you know, mentally ill, I don't care, whatever it is, you have some gifts, talents, and abilities that God has put into you, and God wants you to do work, and work means making a contribution towards loving your neighbor and glorifying God with the gifts that he's given to you. And so everything that I've said um, is universally relevant um, at, at its most foundational level. Now, some of the particular things that I've said about somebody like a rich dean and who has a lot of power as an attorney and he's a partner in a law firm, he's, you know, he's at the top of his field and that gives him an, an incredible ability to do some really amazing things like act counterculturally in the way that I described. That's not something that is available. That particular expression of vocational stewardship is not, is not available to a homeless person without a job, right? But the universal principle that work has dignity and that all of us are capable of using and deploying our talents and skills for the blessings of others, that is really, really relevant. And that's why I love ministries that work among the disabled, for example. I love ministries that are all about figuring out what can uh, handicapped people do um, and how do we provide uh, opportunities for them to be contributors. I mean, I, I shop at, a, at one, one of the grocery stores I try to patronize more often in my community is one that hires um, folks that have a little bit of mental retardation, but they're still really quite functional, and they have them, they're the ones that bag the groceries. I love that. Like, I'm so, and I often will go, you know, if I see somebody with, a, with the manager badge or whatever, and I, I will go up and I will say, you know, one of the reasons I, sh I shop here is because of that, of that program that you have here. I'm, I'm really grateful for that. Um, so I could say a lot more about that, but hopefully that's a, a beginning part of an answer. That's great. And one thing I would say as, um, as a father to a daughter on the autism spectrum, I think that my daughter has stuff to say to us about work that would profoundly teach us and shape us and rebuke us. A few weeks ago, I was in the living room and, um, seeing as she's struggling to spell and, uh, and, and what most people might think as the mundane task of writing a few letters, she is working as hard as she can at and stacking up some, some blocks that have taken her a long time uh, to be able to do. And, um, you know, she is my daughter, so when she was done, she came and said, look, this is the work of my hands, right? <laughs> and... Uh, and, 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 think, and think about the reality of, of what is happening there. She is right. Even with the struggles of autism, which are, are challenging her to be able to, to do these things that we take for granted, she recognizes that it is humans were made to work. And even the simplest work like writing a letter or stacking some blocks is so brilliant that other, other creatures in all of creation can't do it. They can't write a word, right? 
So even the simple task of writing down some words on a form, you are imaging things about God that nothing else in the creation can. And you should be able to lift up that form and say, this is the work of my hands. And the reason we're so bored is because we don't have eyes like my daughter has that sees rightly the brilliant nature of work in the world. Uh, we're going to close uh, with, with this. We're going to just, um, I'm going to give you two, two things, and then I'm going to ask one question uh, to Amy. That This will be our, our last question. I, we've put some pieces of paper on your table, and these are some resources for you to have discussions with other people about. It's the, um, the vocation sweet spot that we mentioned, that Amy mentioned. Um, so talk through this with some friends. And then on the back, there's something called the influence audit. It's another exercise she's come up with that will really help you think about how you can deploy the various aspects of influence you have uh, for those in the world. And then uh, the other thing I wanted to mention is that um, part of my role here at Redemption Tempe is to talk with you about these things. So if you are asking some of those questions, um, it would be my joy to, to meet with you about that. Those types of meetings go to the, to the top of my priority list. And, and one of the things we're gonna do with that is we're gonna have a book club this summer that's completely focused on different readings when it comes to discerning your calling and vocation and reimagining your work. So uh, if you're interested in that, here's what I would encourage you to do. Take a, um, an information card at the, the back desk, at the book table there, and uh, fill it out and just say Jim's Book Club, and then I'll get in touch with you about how to get involved with that. So with that said, I, I get to end with my final question. Let's see, which crazy one am I going to go with here? Uh, this one's not going to be so crazy, but I asked you this earlier, and I thought it was fun. This is the lightning round question. So um, if people, if the churches in this city, let's say, took those questions that you gave us earlier of, you know, who, who's benefiting from this? Uh, how, how am I doing this in a way that glorifies God? What what is uh, God doing through? What if we took this faith and work stuff seriously? How would it benefit the world? So I'm going to throw some categories out there, and you can just quickly tell me how the, the, the city might flourish if we really pressed into the faith and work. So here's the first one. How would, how would families flourish if we really took the, the faith and work stuff seriously? I think families would flourish, first of all, um, hopefully that good teaching on the faith and work would involve the communication about the work and, and rest balance that is in scripture. And so hopefully people would be confronted with their own idols and workaholism, and that would be tamped down, and that would be a very good thing for families because workaholism is something that hurts marriages and hurts families. Um, and then I think um, to the extent that we can reimagine our work uh, and find the joy in being part of participating in God's work in the world and seeing that what we're doing, even though it may feel mundane, is in fact an offering of worship and is a service of love to our neighbors, the more joy and pleasure we have in our work, the less our stress and our anxiety about work will go down, and that ought to bring just a lot more peace to the household as well. How about... Um how about the promotion of the gospel? People uh, seeing and hearing the gospel in the world. That's something we're really concerned about. How would that increase if our commitment to our work 
increase? I think it would be at least two ways. Um, one thing, research has shown that a lot of people um, sort of walk away from church because they don't hear anything from up front about the, of what they do for 40 to 50 percent of their lives. In other words, they, they hear the pastors talking about stuff and they think, you know, you're never telling me anything about what I actually spend most of my time doing, which is my job. Like, obviously, don't, apparently this Christianity thing doesn't have much to do about my job, and I've got a lot of issues with my job, a lot of questions about my job. So we're turning people off by failing to, to teach and preach on it. Um, and so hopefully people would not be turned off, but would actually start coming more, right? And then the other way I think that it would affect us is that the more we live into, um, you know, pursuing our vocations for the common good, um, demonstrating the kenosis of Christ, um, doing work in, in ways that is for the purposes of love, um, we're demonstrating something countercultural. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's Rich Dean. It's all the young lawyers saying, take me out to lunch and explain why the heck you do this, because I don't get you. <laughs> and he's had so many opportunities to share Christ um, because, you know, he, when we live in the workplace doing, what, doing stuff that creates what I call the doggy he head tilt, I, I used to have a Labrador and a Golden Retriever, and, you know, there's the doggy head tilt when you're looking at them and you start talking to them in your little animal voice, and they go... Like, what? You know, that's like, if you can do that in your job, if you can make the non-believers around you go, what? Like, that's awesome. Because when they do the doggy hilt head tilt, that's, that's, you've lived in such a way that you're showing them something that has really captured them and really enticed them and attracted them and confused them in a positive way. And they want to know what, what in the world makes you tick. And then final one, uh, the advancement of justice in the world. I think it could have a huge impact on the advancement of justice because we would begin to recognize how to, we, we begin to really think strategically about how to advance justice um, through the vocations that we have as opposed to always thinking that justice is this kind of thing that there's parachurch ministries or church mission trips that are out there and as a, as a sideline, as a part-time activity, I could go down and do this justice thing. I could go paint the, the, the homeless shelter, or I could go down and, um, you know, fix somebody's car at the center for people that are victims of domestic violence. Um, and so we, we have this sort of episodic involvement that is apart from our daily lives, and we're doing these things. If instead of that, as bankers and business people and lawyers and government officials and teachers, and uh, if we're actually thinking every day, how could I advance justice as a banker, finance person, business person, lawyer, teacher, et cetera, um, you know, maybe our bankers would figure out how to come up with an alternative to payday lending. Maybe our lawyers would start working for criminal justice reform in, in some new and fresh ways. Um, so I think it can have a huge impact on justice. Great. Thank you so much, Amy. We really appreciate you. Yeah. Let me, um, let me close our night in prayer, and then we'll, we'll head out. Father, we're thankful for the great, um, the great things you've shown us about yourself, and we ask that you would show us how to reflect those things to the world 
<clears throat> through the work of our hands, that we would uh, display your creativity, your wisdom, your provision in the daily work that we do. Help us to truly see with, with real eyes uh, the good gift that you've given us in work, and help us to also see our neighbor, uh, those who are affected by the, the work that we do. And God, I pray that you'd give all of us wisdom for the important choices that we have to make and that we as a community would walk with each other and help each other follow Jesus into the various aspects of our 9 to 5 and all of the work beyond our 9 to 5. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <clears throat>